a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe, and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Today, I'm reconnecting with my college Shakespeare professor to discuss the importance and staying power of the Bard's work, tips for reading Shakespeare's plays on paper, and what's up with Lady Macbeth. Professor Doug Green taught English at Augsburg University, including Shakespeare and Renaissance literature, writing, drama, and film. He also helped develop and taught Augsburg's first course in queer studies. Now retired, Doug focuses on reading, writing, and publishing poetry. I can't wait to find out which classics Doug loves and loathes, so let's get started. Hi, Doug. Welcome to Novel Pairings. We're so glad to have you today. Hi, Chelsea. It's good to be here. It's been a little time, huh? I know. So (laughs) I have actually mentioned you offhand on the podcast before because we had a listener ask, what was your favorite English class you've ever taken? And mine was your Shakespeare class 10 years ago. Oh, my gosh. That's so sweet. I love that. I I loved taking Shakespeare with you. And I remember so wishing that there were a couple other levels that I could have taken so that I could have been back in your classroom. I think that was the only class at Augsburg that I took with you. I think you're right. Yeah. But it was my favorite. And I still think of it fondly. So I'm so excited to talk about Shakespeare with you today. Me too. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. All right. We have a couple questions. We ask every guest who comes on the show, and I'm really yeah. excited to hear your answers. What is one classic you love and one classic you loathe? Okay. Let me start with the second because it's easier. Okay. <laughs> okay. So the classic I loathe is Paradise Lost. Although I have taught it at least 15 15- years in a row. Oh, wow. At Augsburg. When I first got there, I was teaching uh, a Renaissance, a kind of survey of um, 17th and 18th century literature. And I really felt, I think except for one year when I subbed in something else like Samson Agonistes, I I almost invariably did Paradise Lost because I just thought this is the one time Students are going to read one of the most important books in the English language, and particularly for Americans, because Paradise Lost, uh, a complete Shakespeare, certainly the Bible, um, would have been standard in any home that had books. So after the Bible, the next things would be those kinds of things, along with Pilgrim's Progress, probably. Those would have been some of the most popular books or redactions of them in some way, commonplace books with a lot of sayings from them. So I felt obliged to teach it. And and I will say it's beautiful. It's absolutely infuriating. (laughs) I mean, it's so, because to me, Milton did a certain kind of um, cultural damage in the long (laughs) run. (laughs) <laughs> but that's another <laughs> podcast. That's a different podcast. We could spend uh, a lot of time on it. I'm right, we could sure. spend a lot of time on that. <laughs> what about um, one that you love? Well, you know, I I love Shakespeare, but let me give you something other than other than Shakespeare. I I love 
So I have to give you three. No problem. All right. So Euripides the Bacchae, which might be my favorite play. And if if people don't know it, they really should um, read it. Or better yet, if you can see it, see it. If it ever, you know, is being performed near you. It's fantastic. Um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf by Albie? And then that brought to mind Virginia Woolf and To the Lighthouse, which is absolutely one of my favorite books. What she does with The Flow of Consciousness is just remarkable. And it's so lyrical and beautiful. It's one of the most beautifully written books I've ever read. I love it. All right, Doug. So the first question that I have, we got this question from our listeners Mm -hmm. maybe six times. Like this was a heavily repeated question when I asked, what do you want to ask the Shakespeare professor? So I thought this is where we should start. Our listeners are wondering, what is it about Shakespeare's work that makes him such an icon and just so huge in the world? Essentially, what is the big deal with Shakespeare? Why him? So that's a, I don't know if your listeners realize this, but that's a, an incredibly complicated question because in his days, Shakespeare ran, you know, he was part owner in one of the major companies. There weren't that many. Um, and um, I mean, the King's men, right? By the time James was King. Um, so they've been the Chamberlain's men before that. Um, and um, he, you know, owned a part owner of theater, all those kinds of things. Um, so he was important. Nobody would deny that. He certainly is mentioned by contemporaries. And when he dies, um, and also later, uh, uh, almost a uh, not quite a decade later, when the folio comes out, you know, there are all these dedicatory poems and, and whatnot written to him by many people who knew him. Um and um, and the, even the people that collected his works were doing a kind of homage to him. Um, at the same time, until after the Restoration, he was definitely not, really until the 18th century, he's really not considered the quintessential English playwright, right? I mean, sort of the national playwright. Um, people would have probably, some some of the more classically and neoclassically oriented would have said, no, Johnson was better. Um, uh, Ben Johnson. Um, So, and then there was a Beaumont and Fletcher were um, at least as popular, if not more popular. Um, So he wasn't always what he is now. At the same time, everyone admitted that, this, you know, upstart crow from Stratford could write beautiful verse and could do incredible speeches um, and create incredible dra- uh, uh, dramas, sonnets, and even the few narrative poems we've got by him. So a remarkable talent in his day who gradually through, particularly through writers like Dryden and 18th century editors, including Alexander Pope and others, are, um, uh, are uh, his works are, are becoming sort of the national work that, 
this is the one who's going to represent us. That really then turns into what I was kind of talking about before, because he's not only the English national poet in the sense of, or British national poet in the sense of uh, the United Kingdom and, and a particular country, but any English-speaking uh, country is going to have some familiarity with him. It'll vary a lot. In the U.S., it's huge. In Canada, huge. In Australia, huge. Um, in, uh, in India, actually huge. In other places, less so. But in places where English is a second language, too, as, say, in Japan, big. So very important in that way. And what that means, Chelsea, is that part of the effect of the importance of Shakespeare now is the fact that he's been part of the culture, and I mean the active popular culture, for so long. So Mark Twain has scenes where characters are butchering Shakespeare as part of the fun. And those were popular works. People traveled around the U.S. performing little bits of Shakespeare, if not the whole thing. It was popular entertainment, even as late as the 19th century and 20th century. Even though now we kind of, there's a sense, oh, Shakespeare, that's hoity-toity high culture. But no, I mean, really from his own day on, it was popular culture and gradually became high culture. Um, and never really lost its popularity. Still one of the most popular playwrights um, in the world. I love that answer for for personal selfish reasons, because it just connects so well to what we're talking about this season, which is adaptation and sort of connecting classic literature to pop culture and to film adaptations and retellings and authors and filmmakers who are bringing these stories to life in a new way, because mm-hmm. it does sound like those allusions to Shakespeare and the constant reproduction of his work is really what keeps him alive in, in the culture. Mm-hmm. We can, can I, can I keep going with this just a little yeah, bit? Go ahead. Okay. So uh, we can talk more specifically later if there are particular ones you want to address, but in some sense, Shakespeare's in become, because of that cultural currency, infinitely adaptable. Or it feels that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a double-edged sword because, say, or you could take um, a local theater company like Theater Moo, or, um, which is the Asian American theater in, in town, um, one of them, um, the most, I think, well-known. Um, and um, and and almost any other community theater of some sort or other, and I don't mean community in the sense of not professional, I mean in the sense of um, either formed by a group of people who want to work together um, within a particular community like the Asian American community um, or um, Penumbra or whatnot, they will often at some point do a Shakespeare play or an adaptation of a Shakespeare play as a kind of, it becomes a kind of, I don't want to say it's not a test, but it's like, it's like a cultural proof of worth. 
Now, you can see why I'm saying this is a double-edged sword, right? Because why should any group have to prove that? And so you can also mm -hmm. say a local community theater in the popular sense of the term, like the Northfield Arts right. Guild, for instance, which isn't professional, they will do Shakespeare also say, you know, look, we can do this, right? So there's a sense in which being able to do that because of his widespread currency, currency and even the sense of value and worth and money mm -hmm. is part of the, the sort of game, the cultural game that's being played. At the same time, there are many things about Shakespeare that then become um, adaptable um, for particular problems. So even though there are um, uh, scholars who, you know, would say, well, don't ever, there's a famous one right now um, who will say, don't, um, you know, don't ever do Othello again, right? Don't ever do The mm. Merchant of Venice again. Um, at the same time, there are others who say, no, no, you know, like I can, you can see also a company, an African-American company, for instance, say, no, we're going to do Othello. And here's why. And here's how we're going to do it. Um, so they're, you know, they can resist, whether you're resisting or diving right in, there are ways that you can fool around with those, um, with these, with these plays. And it just keeps going. And that's a great thing on the one hand. Um, and, um, maybe an issue on another. It really does feel like the themes that we find in Shakespeare's plays are, like you said, endlessly adaptable, but it's fascinating that we can adapt them for our modern culture and they still feel so relevant. Mm -hmm. It's always remarkable. So, Doug, I'm going to combine these next two questions a little bit sure. because I think that they're kind of coming from the same skepticism that some readers bring to Shakespeare, mm -hmm. which is like, how does this, how did this random dude end up being the most popular and most adaptable and iconic representation of the English language? So as a scholar, um, we have some listeners who are wondering where you stand on the question of Shakespeare's identity. And then I think this sort of is a follow-up question. How did he have access? Because we're talking about allusions to Shakespeare, but Shakespeare alludes to so many works in his plays. Where did he have access to all of that at a time where you know, print was still, it's not like we were going to, we were going to Amazon and ordering books back no, then, right? <laughs> no, right. they weren't as accessible, but they were accessible. Let's start with that second okay. one. And then you remind me and push me back to the first. Okay. Yeah. Um, so um, he had, I mean, he was in London, which was a thriving metropolis with lots of printers and, um, you know, he had patrons, and so he had probably access to their libraries, and to he bought his own books as well. Um, some of his plays, as you know, were published uh, even before the folio, so um, he was, you know, he was active with, uh, sometimes they were pirated, but he had access to books. He was, for his day, pretty well educated. I mean, he wasn't you know, it wasn't a university. There were playwrights who had gone to university or who were like Ben Johnson, self um, students in a sense, self-taught uh, autodidacts. 
Um, and Shakespeare would be, um, in some ways, both taught, you know, went to a good um, uh, school in Stratford, and then um, was also, I imagine, an avid, I certainly was an avid reader, etc. Um, some of the things that he knows, he's clearly read a bazillion times, like Ovid, um, like North's Plutarch, or Hollinshed. And he had those. He would have had a Geneva Bible, for sure. Um, he would have had pretty good access to some version, maybe, of Chaucer. So in grammar school, you might read, I doubt you mostly read like a whole book of Ovid. You, If you got one, or you had access through somebody to one, you might. But you probably also were reading in these sort of commonplace books where there'd be quotes from them and then you're supposed to reproduce them or copy them or memorize them or whatever. So a lot of times there are things that we're pretty sure he may have had contact with very early on that stuck with him because they were the kinds of things you'd be learning in you know your grammar school. So where do you stand on the question of his identity? I can't say what I really think on the air, but. <laughs> you can though, Doug. <laughs> you can. I told you we, but, we treat it, you know, not but, too yeah, seriously. <laughs> right. um, but no serious Shakespeare scholar that I know thinks that Shakespeare didn't write the majority of the things we associate with. But we, we are pretty darn sure he wrote what he wrote and there are references to him and this doesn't seem to be any reason to think otherwise i'm glad that we have set it aside (laughs) (laughs) so we can dig into more of the fun yeah i mean that's what we really want to do (laughs) yeah so shakespeare is shakespeare shakespeare is important to cultural conversation and to so many works of english literature But for many people, for many readers, Shakespeare is still intimidating. So we would love some of your tips and recommendations for reading Shakespeare and how to approach the text so that we can get the most out of the experience that we possibly can. Absolutely. I'm going to go through about and, and I have this list in front of me because I don't want to forget these. These, these, I think, if I say nothing else that reaches folks. I think these are probably the most important things I have to say today. Um, uh, First of all, and the most important thing is find the sentence. Don't look at the lines. You know, the verse is beautiful, but Shakespeare is working with sentences or where the, where we use a, you know, for instance, if I ask you a question like, when did you leave Chelsea? And you say at five, that's a rhetorical fragment, right? We know I left at five, right? So look for the the unit of sense. And the unit of sense is generally either a sentence or an implied sentence, like the one I just gave. Um, It's not the line. Do not just stop at the ends of lines because it's the end of the line. You need to find the subject and the verb. The main one, and if there's a dependent clause or clauses, the ones there. And then you've got the sense just as you would have in anything else you're reading. 
It's a little trickier because they could do some things with their verse that we don't tend to do as much today, you know, switch things around. They use some words we don't know, so finding the sense is more than just finding the sentence sometimes, right? There are sentences in Shakespeare I don't understand. <laughs> okay. Um, I love that you share that, Doug. So two things. I like that you say sense rather than meaning because that's right. something that we share with listeners all the time is when you're reading classic texts, something to remember is you don't have to have 100% understanding of every single word every single time to get the impression and the general idea of what is going on. Because I think people sort of get really wrapped up and get down on themselves when they say, I'm reading this, but I'm not fully understanding. I'm not translating it. It's not about translation. It's just about getting that sense, as you said. And like you said, I don't, I still don't get some of these things and it's okay to not get it. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And the work of getting this full sense or a fuller sense of it, that can happen after you've found, okay, here's the, here's the way the sentence is working, right? And now well, let's figure out, okay, I don't know these three words. I, I've never heard that verb before. That's another thing. Shakespeare is important in part because he coined a lot of words, and he, he did that as much or more than most of the other playwrights of the period. The next thing is read aloud. So the second thing is read aloud. And actually, to find the sentence, it often helps to read aloud. In your own voice, with your own accent. You can fool around with accents, but no fake British, please. Okay? Later, if you want to pretend you're Kenneth Branagh or whoever, you can do that. Or, you know, but, you know, you don't have to do that. You can just say the words the way you say them. That's another thing. And it's a complicated subject that I, I, Again, I would probably need visuals to to really show it um, to folks. But so most of the Shakespeare we focus on is written in iambic pentameter, right? Ten syllables more or less. Um, da 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 da. Right, five of those. Um, there are variations within that. Usually unrhymed, so that's what's called blank verse. You don't want to read Shakespeare like that, right? You don't want to read it Mm -hmm. in a bouncy way. What's happening is once you've found the sentences, there's a beautiful, what I would call a productive tension between the meter that it's written in with those line endings and everything and the syntax the shape of the sentence, the structure of the sentence. And that's really what makes Shakespeare, but also all poetry written in a particular meter, beautiful. It's the tension between, um, and particularly iambic pentameter, the tension between the the spoken um, sentence and the metrical form that it's in. Because most of the time, except in some comic verse forms, um, you don't, like a limerick would be a good example, you don't want that bouncy sound uh, because it's, it's, it can be laughable. And you don't want to laugh at Macbeth, Othello, Lear, 
Hamlet, right? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Except when they're being funny, if they ever are, right? Mm-hmm. Or when they are. Um, so that, be aware that the meter doesn't rule. Now, the meter can be useful. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but sometimes if you're not unsure how to say a word, Shakespeare's meter's fairly regular with a couple of little variations, so often, if you just kind of do the iams, you can actually figure out how to say the word in the line. Um, then some just common sense things. Get a, you know, if you really want to read Shakespeare, get a, a decent edition. It doesn't have to be an expensive edition. Your libraries have plenty of them. Um, and use the notes. I wouldn't spend all day, if you're having no trouble reading a section, you don't have to read the notes. But if you're stuck, that's what the notes are for. Um, see if they give a translation of that that line, because sometimes the you know the syntax can be complicated, and you may need a little. I do. I'm grateful for them. They speed things up. Mm-hmm. They can also be interpretive, in the sense that somebody's telling you, "Well, we think this means this." So if you think no, it could mean that, or you see another edition that says something else, you might want to say, "Which do I think?" If you're looking for definitions, um, the Oxford English Dictionary is where you want to go because they give historical definitions. So they say, they'll say these four definitions were operative at the time Shakespeare was writing. I usually go, well, anything before Shakespeare is good, but I usually go maybe another 25 years, quarter century after Shakespeare because Currency is a hard thing to track, and they're using written examples. So speech usually would precede that. So that's, uh, but that's a very handy way of figuring things out, and it'll also enrich the text for you. Memorize. Memorize a speech. Memorize a sonnet. You won't be sorry. (laughs) You'll learn how to say Shakespeare better by doing that. And I know Chelsea will attest to that. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> former theater kid over here uh-huh <laughs> yeah um and um and then if you really are into this stuff go to your library and get them to either show you or order for you um a, a, a folio facsimile all right they can do that you can also actually find this online so you don't absolutely have to look at it in print And what you want to do is look at a speech you love or the speech you memorized and see what the punctuation is in that first um, or that early, it's not often the first printed, but that early printed version. Now, their, their punctuation is wildly different from ours, as are some of their letters. Sometimes S's, S's look like F's without the crossbar, small small s's and f's but so you have to get used to that but um if you do that you can sometimes get a feel for the pacing of a line um so shakespeare has a lot of enjambed lines in modern editions which means that you're meant to run over from one line to another the syntax tells you to do that and it does in the original usually too but they might have put a comma at the end or they might have left out a comma we have and you want to know that it may change the way not so much usually the meaning of a speech but the way you think about its pacing 
But the big thing I would say is the first two. Look for the sentence, read aloud. If you start doing that, I think you'll enjoy Shakespeare more than you may have before. I I just want to throw in as the like we said, former theater kid here, I think if you can go and see some live Shakespeare in your community, there's there's nothing to compare to that experience as well, to be able to see the actors interpreting. I mean, certainly a film adaptation is great. We have so many of those available to us, but I just don't think there's anything like the live theater version of being able to see the actors interpret with all of their physicality, the text on stage. I, I would add, um, if you want, uh, so you can go to places like the Guthrie, which will do a very formal um, production, not necessarily old fashioned, but mm-hmm. formal. Um, but I would highly recommend um, a small theater like either the classical th- um, actors ensemble or um, 10,000 things in the Twin Cities area, mm-hmm. both of those. Um, if you want to get the kind of close-up, kind of intimate feel of Shakespeare, they're wonderful productions, and I highly recommend um, going to them. Do I like every single production they do? Not necessarily, but I've never been bored. Hmm. Yeah. So, Doug, you shared here some of your favorite resources to supplement reading Shakespeare. Unless you have anything that you really want to add with your words, I am okay to just put these in show notes so that we can start to talk a little more about Macbeth. Sure. I'll only add that, you know, the sources I gave you are not necessarily the the primary ones, but there's so much online. There's so much online now. And the only thing I would caution people is there's a lot of junk uh, or kind of amateur fan stuff that's not necessarily junk, but isn't in, well-informed sometimes. So I would say when you're, especially when you're starting out and may feel a little insecure about what's good and what's not, start with some um, of the more either academic or library sources. And there are many, many available on the internet. Um, and you can you can hand on those other pieces that I suggested. Perfect. Those will be in mm-hmm. the show notes for you to peruse right. as you all read Macbeth. Beth with us. This is our October book club pick. And just we we have so many Shakespeare plays to choose from, but we thought, okay, we want to read Shakespeare this fall. October feels like the perfect time for a slightly spooky play involving some witches and some blood and some <laughs> revenge. And so uh, we're reading Macbeth. So we have some questions to help frame our reading experiences. And Doug, we're really excited to have you here to sort of guide us into this Macbeth reading process. So the first one is really fun. Of course, the play opens with these witches. And so are there historical or cultural significance to these witches in Macbeth? And then is there some significance symbolically that you can tell us about as well? Sure. Um, So I think there's definitely historical significance to them. So James had taken the throne on Elizabeth's death in 1603. Um, He wrote a book on witchcraft. So James I of England, he was James VI of Scotland, James I of England. He was an expert, quote unquote, on witches. So one speculation is that when Shakespeare 
wrote this play, we think it was probably performed in 1606, so after the um, gunpowder plot, because there's some references to that, and it was an assassination attempt. It was foiled, became the basis for Guy Fawkes Day in England. Um, that um, This play was probably performed in a way to kind of pay homage to to James. I mean, after all, they were the king's men, so let's give the king a, a Scottish play, which is, the, by the way, the way that theater people will often refer to it, so as not to say the name because it's supposed to be unlucky. <laughs> yep. So I'll say, we're doing the Scottish play. I twitch um, a little bit every time, every time I, I say it. Every time I say Macbeth, yeah, I know. Um, um, so, so there's that. There's the fact that which uh, that especially since you know James wrote a book on it, it was it was a matter of there were laws relating to it. There were there were certainly religious prescriptions about it um, from, and it was actually being. Uh, it was a major sort of cultural event uh, or cultural uh, concern at the time. This idea that there were these evil people, mostly women. Um, who were sort of trafficking and devilry. Um, and um, this is where, you know, I mean, we had it here in our own country um, the, prior to our independence um, where women were, you know, uh, brought to trial, et cetera, and killed. And the same thing was happening there. Um, so... It was a very topical thing, and it related to the king. He felt he was an expert on it. Um, it was a religious concern. So it was very much it was a religious culture, right? It's a, pro, a new, a, a relatively newly popular uh, Protestant culture, and um, and so that was one appeal. Witches are great on stage. So, so yeah, it was just <laughs> pure entertainment, right? I mean, you know, yeah. fair is foul and foul is fair, right? I mean, who doesn't want to do that line, right? You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's, uh, so they're, they're very dramatic. You can do all kinds of things with them on the stage. Um, that's another thing. There was, though Elizabeth was, had been certainly for a lot of her reign, a popular queen, um, uh, I think there were definitely men who feared her. Uh, James's mother, Mary, was problematic, I think, even to him. Um, and um, so that's Mary, Queen of Scots. Um, and so the association of, I mean, going in, in Christian culture, going back to Eve, right? I mean, there's a, there's definitely an association of women and evil. So this isn't all that surprising in the West. So here you've got, for instance, not just the witches, but Lady Macbeth, a powerful woman, or at least has access to power through, of course, a powerful man. So there you can see the limit. There's that problem. They're ambiguous, at least in the description of them. They're ambiguous. They're described definitely as bearded. Are they real? Do they call, you know, do they cause things or um, do they just foreknow them might be a way of thinking about this. So it's hard to know, right? It's very hard to know. 
this association with um, you know what's causing Macbeth to do what he does is intimately bound up with women and evil, and the play's kind of confusion of that. And I'd love to say we're all beyond that now, but I mean, I don't think that that's true. I mean, you can look at our popular culture. I just saw a horror movie called Barbarian yesterday, and um, it's got monstrous women in it. So mm. we're still playing off that image. We're still playing off that image, fear of the female body, all kinds of things. I think this is a really good transition into talking about Lady Macbeth. Yeah, absolutely. We have uh, a lot of listeners who are fascinated by her. And I have a feeling in our book club later this month, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Lady Macbeth because she really is a fascinating character. Oh, yeah, she is. So what are some of your interpretations of her? Should we consider her villainous? Is there a more compassionate reading of her character? What what are some of your thoughts on Lady Macbeth for us? Yeah. So there are a few things we know about her, although sometimes they it feels like they're contradicted or we don't see other evidence of it. But it looks like she was a mother. I mean, she says, I've given suck. So that suggests mm. that. I think for me, the overarching aspect of her character She's ambitious too, like her husband, but she only can have power through her husband. Everything she suggests to him makes a kind of sense. There's no way for her to achieve greatness unless he does. And that is the position of women in that culture for the most part. You know, Elizabeth was an, ex- an exception and only after a lot of trouble to get there. But, you know, especially during the Jacobean period, I mean, that's definitely true. You, it's just, you know, the subordination of women is um, huge. There are powerful women, but it's often through their relations to men. Um, and I think she exemplifies that in a lot of ways. Well, what would that be like psychologically? Now, most of them don't go around saying, you need to commit murder for me, dear. Right. But if you take that as metaphoric, what needs to be done in order for me to get ahead? What do I need this guy to do? Now, the other thing about her, though, so that sounds pretty calculating and horrible in some ways, right? Um, Even if it is an understandable response to severe frustration, cultural frustration in a sense, social frustration. At the same time, I think she loves her husband and she really wants him and may even feel he deserves to be in that position. So they they are a couple, let's put it this way, they don't have trouble talking to each other. They don't always tell each other the exact truth all the time. And of course, they grow farther and farther apart as the play goes on, which is one of the other tragedies of this. Or maybe not. Maybe thank God they didn't <laughs> stick together because it could have been a nightmare. But but I think that um, there is a sense that um, I mean he can find, he looks to her he consults her he shares his success with her it matters to him and I think it matters to her too. I don't think it's simply self serving. It's a complex relationship that relationship or at least it can be portrayed that way. 
there's plenty in the text to back that up. Hmm. So I would hate to see her simply played as, you know, a horrible conniving. It's, it's just not, it's so much richer than that. And I don't think you can by the end, right? I mean, we've seen, we see her, she runs the full gamut, right? From, you know, iron, just uh, the, the most pitiable kind of insanity, and eventually suicide, presumably. An actor's dream role. <laughs> I mean, oh, it is. I mean, it's just the full experience of human yeah, emotion. Yeah, I mean, so so um, both of them, and so the, I want to stress this with Lady Macbeth too. I'd have killed him myself, except he reminded me of my father. Mm. What's going on there, right? Both of these characters have consciences. That's what makes them interesting. Um, so Shakespeare had done an evil character, Richard III, who doesn't seem to have a conscience, right? He's got a lot of other stuff going for him, but not a conscience. Mm-hmm. These characters, they know what they're doing, and they do it knowingly. It's really scary, and it tells you something about, not, not in words we can put, I think, almost other than the play itself, about the connections between evil and humanity, and it's played out across evil and masculinity and evil and femaleness. And it raises questions about, are those problematic in themselves, those positions? Um, and if the witches seem to be somewhere between those, if you, there are ways to play those, again, because of their ambiguity, that can be interesting as well. I think one reason they may be seen as evil is that um, to the extent they transgress what people probably hope were very firm or clear roles, they're a threat to the social order. And maybe, given the way societies work, if you don't conform, and this is true in our own culture as well, if you don't conform to social norms, you can be seen as evil and maybe even see yourself as evil or capable or inclined to evil, even though you don't necess- wouldn't necessarily want to do that hmm. or feel you have to do it. So the play raises a lot of fascinating questions. Well, I think that that combination, which you phrased so well, of the psychological drama and the physical gore of this play is part of what makes it such a great one to adapt to film. Mm-hmm. So uh, since we're talking about adaptations this season, do you have any favorite Macbeth film adaptations to recommend to listeners as they approach this text? Yep. Um, so um there are many, many good ones. Um, I'm going to focus on three that I particularly like. Um, I'm not making claims for them as the best mm-hmm. ones. I'll start just by recommending, even though it's not necessarily my favorite one. Um, I, if you haven't seen the Joel Cohn film, I think it's well worth seeing. It's beautifully filmed. The performances, particularly by the two leads, Denzel Washington and um, Francis McDormand, are fantastic they are an older 
Macbeth without being Malcolm Evans and Judith Anderson, who did an earlier both staged, videotaped, and film version that was the first one I ever saw and almost turned me off to the play completely. Oh, wow. They were just way too old. <laughs> they were so old that it wasn't it wasn't believable to me. Yeah. Whereas Washington and McDormand feel like, no, they still got, they, they're desperate to get where they want it to be in the first place. The two others, I'll start with the English-speaking one, are Roman Polanski's version. And he's a controversial figure for a lot of reasons that I won't go into. But he, it's got some things that are very 70s. So there's the Lady Macbeth. They, they both, John Finch and um, Francesca Nice, I think it is, um, uh are nude at certain points, et cetera. So it's like, you know, mm-hmm. the shock factor in the <laughs> 70s, right? Yeah. Today, people will, it, you may, if I hadn't said that, you probably wouldn't even notice. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, um, but um, it was funded by Hugh Hefner. I mean, so there are things about it that you just want to go, oh, God. Sure. <laughs> um, but, um, but it is also the two leads are young and ambitious. And that worked incredibly well. Mm. It changed the way I think people saw that play. It's brilliantly performed. It's darker than the play is written. So when the adaptation, the ending doesn't really resolve things. Donald Bain goes off and there's a sense that more is happening and witches are out there. And so, but uh, to be honest... The Malcolm in the play is not a man I'd want in charge. So, <laughs> so, so I, I think Polanski really was playing that up. In other words, he was playing out a line in the play in some ways. So brilliant film, beautifully filmed as many of his films are absolutely terrifying. And um, uh, John Finch is fantastic as Macbeth. Absolutely fantastic. Both of them, both the actors are very good, but he's exceptional. In Kurosawa, it's done, it's kind of got a no, N-O-H tradition, um, Japanese theatrical tradition informs the production. It's very atmospheric. Some of it's hard to see um, because in the black and white, there's a lot of fog. Hmm. And um, they rebuilt set. They built sets on Mount Fuji. They did all kinds of um, things. It's beautifully filmed. It is very dark. The Lady Macbeth is to die for. Um, She's just absolutely fantastic and horrifying. Um, So when it came out, some people said, well, this isn't a Shakespeare play because it's in Japanese and it doesn't follow. It's not even a translation of Shakespeare's dialogue, but it's as Shakespearean as anything I can think of. So, so that, that's that other kind of adaptation. So Polanski does things as say, um, Zeffirelli would in Romeo and Juliet or mm-hmm. Taming of the Shrew when he did hit those films where they, you know, they move scenes from here to there. They cut lines drastically with film of course you don't have to do all those descriptions because you can show people what mm-hmm. what the descriptions were meant to do on stage um but um but kurosawa he gets shakespeare and he saw so this is goes back to where we started chelsea he saw connections between different periods in japan's history 
both when he did this and when he did Ron, which is an adaptation of Lear, he saw connections between this and medieval Japanese history and historical mm. moments. And then through that application to the present day, so or his present day, it holds up beautifully. It's terrifying. It's gorgeous. Um, and he's one of the great 20th century filmmakers. Um, so it's it's worth seeing just for that. I haven't seen that one. I'm going to have to look it up. Oh, it's fantastic. See if I can access it. That's it's awesome. part of the Criterion Collection, so you might be able to find oh, it that okay. way, or your library might have it. Well, thank you. I have one final question. Sure. I think this is a fun one to end on. It's not necessarily Macbeth-related, but I just wanted to have this to kind of wrap up our conversation. Sure. And so this is from a listener who asks... Shakespeare's plays appeal to such a broad interest in terms of highbrow arts to lowbrow the masses and the elite. And you alluded to this at the beginning of the podcast when we were talking about how Shakespeare's plays started out compared to how they're sort of viewed and how people feel like they have to prove themselves with Shakespeare. So in your opinion, are there any contemporary writers, artists, or filmmakers who really strike that balance that Shakespeare did in his time? of appealing to the masses and sort of the critics or the academy yeah. maybe we'll think of and who might be considered our modern Shakespeare. Yeah. So I don't think, well, for one thing, my first answer suggested there wasn't a Shakespeare in Shakespeare's day, right? Mm-hmm. There were many of yeah. them. There were a lot of yeah. playwrights and poets who were, um, you know, because modern, what, what would one would ar- one could argue that modern British culture, modern English culture, is really just being formed during the early modern period, and so there isn't somebody who's got that voice. They chose, in a sense, that sort of the culture or the, historically Shakespeare was chosen for that role. Um, but I think I can answer this across some genres. That would be the best way to do it. So if I take playwrights, I'm going to have to say that. For pl- first of all, plays today are really not popular. Yeah, I mean, you have to have money true. to go to a play, right? I mean, unless mm-hmm. you've you've got you know a play in the park, you're going to pay something to go to one, which is usually Shakespeare if it's in the park, that, right? Exactly. <laughs> Oddly, there you go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> case case closed, right? <laughs> uh, um, but um, so. I think it's the playwrights that also work in film. So Tony Kushner, who's working with Steven Spielberg, would be the most obvious mm-hmm. example. So he does Angels in America, which arguably is, I mean, this isn't an absolute statement, but it's certainly the most important, if not one of the most important plays of the last part, last quarter of the 20th century. Um, among novelists, I think we, we, there I think you have more crossover. So mm-hmm. Colson Whitehead, James McBride, the late Toni Morrison, Louise Erdrich, Margaret Atwood. These are all people who could be on any academic reading list, right? Um, at the same time that uh, they are popular and they're adapted to other forms as well. Mm-hmm. Poets are harder. It's much harder to find, you know, where is that boundary? So um, Robert Frost would be definitely somebody who but look how far back i'm going sure yeah. right so early 20th century mid 20th century 
Um, but then also Mary Oliver or Lucille Clifton, both now gone, but um, more recent. Um, Ross Gay, the poet Ross Gay, African-American poet, he's really crossed over both in his essays and his poems. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, similarly, the public poets, uh, the best examples of these or the easiest examples that some of your um, listeners might know right offhand would be the ones who did um, Obama's um, inaugural poems. So yeah. Richard Blanco and Elizabeth Alexander would be good examples of poets who kind of straddle that, that line. So, it, but it's much harder with poets. For one thing, everybody has their favorite. There are so many of them. And then they're also so little known, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Right? It's much hard, <laughs> uh, you know, it's much harder to become known as a poet. Um, um, it's, and it's impossible to make a living as a poet. I should know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, so. Um, it's a fun question to think about. Yeah, I think it's yeah. fun to think, what are the, who are the writers of today that will be, talking about a hundred years from now of course you know Shakespeare we're going back far further than that but I just think it's fun to think who are some of these authors that are going to resonate constantly and continually well you could say that Shakespeare is one of our most popular current playwrights couldn't you you yeah I I think you probably could (laughs) I mean and especially people get to remake him Right. right. They get to remake him every time they do a production. It's um, different. And many times they're thinking about how do we do them for us. And probably some of the Broadway musicals that are performed over exactly. and over again and yeah. constantly restaged are a better representation of yep. um, the sort of legacy of Shakespeare and, and sure. what sure. the popular, what the public is really looking for and excited about on stage. Sure, sure. Fun. Okay. So, Doug, this is uh, a little out of the blue, but I was wondering, because you were talking about reading Shakespeare out loud, and I remember when you would read out loud in class, I always felt like I got it. (laughs) Is there a snippet of Macbeth or something that you would be able to read out loud for us before we go? Yeah, it's pretty cold, this reading I'm going to give you right now. That's all right. You know what I mean by that. So I'm looking at, and I'm using a Norton um, text, um, which is the Oxford, um, God, this is so academic, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) It's the Oxford Shakespeare, but it's published here by Norton as a textbook. And Satan comes in and he says, the queen, this is Act 5, Scene 1, the queen, my lord, is dead. She should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Awfully good for a cold read, Doug. Thank you so much for oh, reading pleasure, Shakespeare. Chelsea. 
for sharing your tips with us, for talking with me today. This was so much fun. And it felt like sitting in your classroom again, which was just a delight. So thank you so much for spending the time on this with me today. Thanks for having me. It was a real, real pleasure. Readers, thank you for all your kind words and encouragement as we met a big podcast milestone with 100 episodes of Novel Pairings. I can't help but feel like this episode number 101 was perfectly fitting to chat with a professor. As we continue to create this show, here are the best ways you can support us and help us keep the podcast studio lights on. The first thing you can do is leave a review on Apple Podcasts. This is totally free, quick, and easy, but it absolutely has a big impact. You don't need an iPhone to do this. Just go to the Apple Podcast site on your computer or web browser on your phone, and you can leave a review that way. The next way you can support us is joining Patreon. We share a bunch of bonus content for patrons of the show, but you can just participate in what you have time for. There is no pressure to go to every single event or to download every single bonus episode, but we have some really great educational resources and content that we're putting out on Patreon, and every patron's contribution helps us fund the show and literally (laughs) feed our families. I specifically thank all of you for helping me buy a $45 pack of diapers at Costco last week. You can sign up at $5 a month and access bonus episodes on Fridays or at $8 a month to access bonus episodes and events. That $8 a month is a steal because that basically means that for $1.50, you're accessing our class that month and another $1.50, you're accessing our book club meeting. So I I love having patrons support us at the $5 or $8 level. And some people bounce back and forth depending on what's going on in their lives at the moment. All of that is totally fine. We thank you for any contribution that you've made to the show. Last, we love hearing from you on Instagram, whether you tag us in a post about reading the classics or share an episode in your stories. This helps us spread the word about novel pairings and it helps us connect with you directly in our DMs. So thank you for being such kind, inquisitive readers and for listening to this little show. Thank you as well to Miles Eichner and Mark Anderson for our theme music. Next time, we'll be back with a TBR toppler you won't want to miss. Until then, we declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than of a book.